Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. Now, my name is Carter Laren. It's someday, Wednesday. I think it's January 12th. Actually, let me look at my calendar. It's January 12th, 2022. Welcome to everyone in chat. Um, someone's skipping Michael Malice and Dave Smith for this. I mean, Greg, that's some de dedication. If I knew that Michael Malice was talking to Dave Smith, I might just stop broadcasting and go listen. But... Um, but no, no, you should absolutely stay. This is way better. Uh, we'll be nerdier for sure. Um, welcome, everyone. We, I just got a notification from YouTube that we hit 2 million views. So, yay. Uh, seems like it's taken a while to get to 2 million views, but that's a lot of views. Most of them are from Pirate Tomsky. Um, Anyway, Dangerous Thoughts is a sh uh, show that we do here on Unsafe Space. Every Wednesday, it's a live show, obviously. Um, we uh, get into deeper discussions about philosophy for life, uh, for humans here in reality. Uh, so we try to articulate, reinforce, uh, extend the rational life-affirming ideas responsible for the success of Western civilization. I assume if you're watching, you're subscribed um, because subscriptions are mandatory. If not... Correct your lapse in judgment. Uh, lapse in judgment. You might want to, you know, subscribe two or three times from separate accounts because uh, you're not really subscribed until your third subscription. Um, but if you are subscribed, you can also help us grow just by sharing. You can share this video if you would like to see the community expand. Community of like-minded individuals. Share it with your friends. That's how that happens. Um, you can also support us directly by going to unsafespace.com. Trying to get all the, what else do I, what else am I missing? Oh, you can donate to the show to keep the lights on. And uh, depending on what your level, you can get your name in the credits. You can get a little grenade mug, which is on the shelf behind me right there. Um, all financial supporters, no matter what your level, get into the Discord channel, which is the best place to have like-minded uh, conversations, argue about silly things, post pictures of your pets, whatever else you guys do um, in there. And we'll start to do more with that channel and have some more exclusive content in there this year. All right. So what do we have on the agenda today? Well, I just realized I didn't do a definition. I usually do definitions every week, but I didn't. I, there's no definition today. But what we do have on our agenda um is three things. It'll be, I don't think the show will be too long, but I don't think it's going to be short. Um, if you recall, last week we had a Never Argue with David Hogg. So this week we have a Never Argue with David Hogg, the sequel. We're also going to talk about crying about hobbies, because that's a thing that we do now. We cry about hobbies. And uh, we're going to talk about postmodernism's meta narrative about science, which is a little bit of a oxymoron, if you know what anything about postmodernism and their relation to meta narratives. So let's jump right in. Uh, if you're in chat and want to talk about anything particular or whatever, please just say it. Let me know. Throw a super chat up or just yell really loudly and maybe I'll notice. Um, all right. David Hogg syndrome, the sequel. So last week we said never, never argue with David Hogg. We talked about why you should never argue with David Hogg here. I'll, there we go. Uh, Beverly was supposed to put this picture up. There's the, oops, there it is. There's the graphic. That's David. I, I made this myself. It's, it's 
Beautiful. It's David Hogg as Simple Jack. Okay. Last week, we talked about why you should never argue with him. The summary here was uh, he used a lot of floating abstractions. He's not speaking a language uh, that has correspondence to reality in any way. And it would take too much education, basically, to get to the point of speaking the same language as him and having a conversation. That was that was the summary. Um, and I did mention that... Um, I did also mention, I think, in that discussion about a Socrates quote about words as magic or words as kind of having some supernatural power. I found the Socrates quote. I'm going to read it to you just to round that out. And then we're going to talk about David Hogg part two. Although this is really, this will be his uh, progeny. Okay. This is in Gorgias. Uh, Gorgias is um, talking to Socrates about how orators, which is kind of like sophists, um, not exactly, but orators uh, are are awesome. It's great to be an orator, and they're very powerful because you can get people to listen to you even if you don't know what you're talking about. In fact, you can get people to listen to you um, over experts. So he, he talks about like, well... <laughs> You know, they'll listen to an order and order about a medical opinion instead of a doctor. It's great. And this is what makes uh, being an orator awesome. And so Gorgias says, and whenever those craftsmen you were just now speaking of are appointed, Socrates, you see the orators are the ones who give advice and whose views on these matters prevail. And Socrates says, yes, Gorgias, my amazement at that led me long ago to ask what it is that oratory can accomplish. For as I look at it, it seems to me to be something supernatural in scope. That's the reference. Obviously, he doesn't say words as magic words, but um, or language as magic words. But what he's alluding to is that people who uh, view words merely as manipulation tools do perform a kind of a magic. They get work done by convincing other people to do it. They get things to happen not because they've uh, act they're actually doing anything in reality. Um, or convincing anyone um, with facts, but because they have incantations which get people to move and do things. Um, so that was the quote. Now you've got it. This week, the the it's not actually David Hogg. It is uh, it is someone else, but it reminded me of it. So last week, remember I said Carrie tagged me in a David Hogg tweet, and that's what started this thing. She tagged me again. She's got a knack for for this. She tagged me again in this ridiculous tweet that we're not even going to actually cover the tweet itself. We're going to cover a response to it. But this is a tweet from Mayor Muriel Bowser, who is, in case you don't know, the mayor of Washington about, hey, remember starting Saturday, you will need these three things before heading out. Proof of vaccination, if you're 12 years and older, proof of vaccination and photo ID, if you're 18 and older, and a mask. So she's not taking any chances on the flu. You're going to have all. Okay. So <clears throat> someone replies and says activities where requiring a photo ID is apparently not racist. And they list a whole bunch of stuff, buy alcohol, buy cigarettes, open a bank account, apply for food stamps, blah, blah, blah. Like get married, purchase a gun, adopt a pet, all this stuff. That's going to be an ID and Vax card is going to be required. And then it says activities where requiring a photo ID must be racist. And it just says voting. And of course, someone responds. This is what 
Carrie, you can see Carrie tagged me here. This someone responds and says, how many of those things on the left side are rights in the US Constitution? It's quite a question, interestingly phrased. How many of those things on the left side are rights in the US Constitution? Well, just like David Hogg, maybe this person is a little bit confused about what rights are, where they come from, and what words mean. So um, this is another example of too much work to get to a point where we could share a common language and have a discussion here, but uh, I am gonna quickly talk about it because I feel like people still need to hear this. Um, <laughs> don't call her Carrie Smith hog, Greg, that's just rude. Okay, um, first of all, so this person uses the preposition in. How many of those things on the left side are rights in the US Constitution? Now. It, that probably indicates this person thinks that rights originate from the Constitution. Um, and as we spoke about last time, they do not. They are a priori. Uh, Constitution can recognize rights. Um, and someone with a proper understanding of that would have used language like how many of those are recognized by the Constitution, not in. But, okay, fine. Um, but the person th the, the person who's, who's tweeting this thinks that um, the things on the left are not rights, right? Because you're saying, well, how many of those are on in the U.S. Constitution? The, the implication is that those aren't part of a, the rights in the con afforded in the Constitution. Only the thing on the right is, which is voting, which is why that can't require an ID. Um, and I think it's worth just sorting this out a little bit. Not everyone will be happy with this. Tom might be, though, because we're going to talk about 19th Amendment. All right, those things on the left, I'll, I'll read through them uh, again. Buy alcohol, buy cigarettes, open a bank account, apply for food stamps, apply for welfare, blah, 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 blah. I'm skipping a bunch. Drive a car, rent a car, get on an airplane, get married, purchase a gun, adopt a pet, rent a hotel room. Okay, now, apart from the First and Second and Fourth Amendments, those are the kind of major um, Amendments where they talk specifically about rights of citizens. Um, and obviously the First Amendment being uh, religion, free speech, free assembly, Second Amendment being firearms, uh, right to self-defense, and Fourth Amendment being privacy. Um, aside from those, um, kind of the most important amendment with respect to individual rights are is Amendment 9. And maybe you could say Amendment 10 as well. But Amendment 9 says... Uh, the enumeration, again, by the way, the founding fathers, I think, understood, I know, understood rights come prior to the government, which is why they are recognizing them while not being infringed by the government, not granting them, not pretending to grant them through the government. So anyway, Amendment 9 says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. Okay. And Amendment 10 says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited to it by the states, are reserved to the states respectively or the people. That's a little bit weaker. But nine is pretty strong. Hey, the rights, uh, uh, the enumeration of these rights shall not be construed to disparage other rights. So most of those rights on the left-hand side, I would argue, are actually recognized by the Constitution <laughs> very clearly because – the Constitution doesn't say you can't drive a car, uh, and it does say that they can't stop you from driving a car through Amendment 9, so 
you do have a right to drive a car, um, purchase a gun, buy a house. As far as the federal government's concerned, we can, we're can we putting states aside for a second, but those are actually recognized. Um, there are some exceptions on the left-hand side there. Uh, let me put the left-hand side up again so people can see it. There are some exceptions there. Applying for food stamps, welfare, Medicaid, Social Security, unemployment licenses, that kind of stuff. Hunting license, fishing license. Um, I guess the right to apply for something. Uh, like I guess that kind of makes sense. But having the right to apply for something that has no right to exist in the first place is a little bit odd. Like those, there's no, those things are not something you have a right to obtain uh, and shouldn't exist. So, um, and obviously there's mixing of some state and federal program stuff here. But now let's look at the right side, <clears throat> the right to vote. I hate that phrase, by the way, uh, which you'll figure out why. Do you have a right to vote? Short answer, no. End of show. Uh, you do not have a right to vote. There is no a priori right to vote. The idea of voting presupposes the existence of a government, right? Without a government, and obviously we're not talking about like voting in your, uh, you know, D&D group or whatever. We're talking about voting in a government election. Voting in a government election presupposes the existence of government. Does it not? <laughs> right? Obviously. You do have a right to express your opinion and preferences. That's an a priori right before governments exist. But there's no right in the philosophic sense to vote. All right? Voting is by its nature. Voting in a government election is by its nature a privilege granted by men with guns who are in control of your geographic region who call themselves a government. Now, that might be a government that some of you think is legitimate for whatever reason, or it might be a government that some of you would argue is illegitimate for whatever reason. Regardless of your advocacy, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, it's that government that tells you you can vote and sets the rules for voting. And you can argue that it ought to be universal and blah, 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 and there should be no age restriction. It should be 18. It should be 21. You should blah, blah, blah. You can argue what the rules should be, that they should be applied universally, blah, blah, blah. But it's not a, you don't actually have a right to vote for, in the philosophical sense. Um, you have a promise from the government to let you vote. Um, and the government obviously is the, the guys with guns in charge. If we look at the original constitution, including the first 10 amendments, right? Um, I think you might, many people might be surprised. There's nothing in there that talks about voting, personal voting. I mean, there's maybe some Senate and stuff like that, but nothing about voting. It's a contract between states. The issue about electing people was left up to the states. Senators were chosen by the legislatures of the states. That's what was that's what was contemplated. The concept of of citizens, average citizens voting doesn't even show up until the 14th Amendment, 1868. Right? And you can see in that amendment the idea of rights existing um, kind of the idea that rights generally exist a priori or the idea that uh, something happens before the government is kind of lost at this point. So if you look at section two of this, rights, the right to vote is kind of presumed to exist as a thing, which is weird, right? Um, 
but it says section two says representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed. But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and digital officers of the state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged, except for participation in, re in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Long story short, what that means is they're presupposing that there's voting going on in states, and they're saying uh, you can't infringe the right of people, men, 21 years or older, uh, to vote in those states without losing uh, your proportional representation in Congress. That's what that says, basically. And that, again, that didn't show up until, my, or until 1868. And then in 1870, Amendment 15 um, talked about the, the a right to vote not being denied based on race. And then we jump to Amendment 17 in the worst year ever, 1913. Maybe not the worst year, but one of the worst years ever, uh, 1913. Um, and it's not actually a universal suffrage uh amendment here. It says the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years, and each senator shall have one vote. The electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branch of the state legislatures. I don't read this to me as actually having the people vote directly for the senator. Remember, there's an electoral college. There's the idea of electors is already sitting around. Um, electors are viewed as speaking on behalf of the people. So that doesn't, this doesn't mean everyone gets to vote necessarily, uh, the language that is. Um, 1913, I, just quickly, <laughs> just in case you don't know the, the evil of that year, that's when we got uh, the 16th Amendment authorizing income taxes. Yes, we did exist for a long time without income taxes and seemed to be fine. Um, the Federal Reserve Act, so the creation of the Federal Reserve, uh, which uh, is, has been used to usurp uh, any kind of free market and money and destroy our currency. All this happened under Woodrow Wilson, mostly Democrats, Democrats in the House, and after March in that year, it was Democrats in the Senate. Not that I like Republicans either, but that was, that was a year of Democratic uh, destruction of many <sighs> tranquil qualities, uh, like not having to pay income tax and having real money. Okay, move on to Amendment 19 in 1920, right, uh, the right to vote not denied based on sex. That's Tom and Chat's favorite one. Uh, then you see it again in Amendment 24 in 1964, the right to vote not denied or abridged because you haven't paid a tax, poll tax, um, or other tax. And then again in 1971, Amendment 26, the right is not um, denied to anyone based on their age who's over 18. So that's just changing the voting age. So the point is, as originally envisioned, the Constitution actually didn't talk about this, which makes sense because it's a contract between states. And this kind of stuff was added later um, after the Civil War. Uh, and, then, and then more in the 20th century. So in summary here, uh, there's no such thing as a right to vote philosophically. Um, you can create a state with a monopoly on force in a particular geographic region. That state can make promises to you about who can vote, right? Uh, 
that state could even decide to call that a right to vote. It's not actually a right. It's actually just a promise from the state. Uh, and again, I suspect the founding fathers knew this. Um, and if something goes wrong with that, if you don't get the vote and you think you should, at best, you can accuse the state of violating its promise to you, which is not a minor thing, right? A state that violates its promises is is illegitimate because um, promises are all you have protecting you from, from tyranny. So that's not a minor thing, but it's not a violation of your right. Uh, that happened when you gave, granted them monopoly of force. Um, so, you know, of course, the word right has been conflated now, and it's kind of difficult to talk about because it's con confl conflated with this philosophical concept of right and promises made by the state. And most people don't really understand the distinction and they use them interchangeably. And arguably, they're not wrong necessarily to use them interchangeably because the Constitution itself talks about the word right uh, with respect to voting, which doesn't actually make philosophical sense. Um, again, it's only amendments after the Civil War that do this, but it is that counts as the Constitution. Um, on a side note here, uh, I've mentioned the danger of floating abstractions like the public good before, which is an anti-concept. Um, I've mentioned this on on dangerous thoughts. There's a there's a I think there's a floating abstractions video. I think it's called floating abstractions or something. It is in my notes. I don't remember what the title is uh, on YouTube. There's a less philosophical but uh, maybe more popular video called "The Public Good Isn't" or something like that on YouTube as well on this channel that talks about the public good being an anti-concept. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up as a side note for those, since we're talking about the Constitution, the General Welfare Clause of Section 8 is a great example of how the invalid concept of public good, or in this case, you know, general welfare, it's euphemism for the same thing, is, is insidious. And over time, it's devastating, right? That General Welfare Clause has been used to undermine literally every right you could possibly conceive of, right? Because it grants to Congress the power to do things for the general welfare. In other words, for the public good. That's that's one of the holes in the constitution that leftists have driven a truck through to eradicate rights. So the next time someone tells you, well, I think the public good is a good concept and we just have to, I'm telling you, it's an insidious and devastating concept. It's, it's poison and you can see this is a, the general welfare clause is a great example of how it's poisoned. You got all this great philosophy, all this great ideas about rights being a priori and the constitution can't do this and blah, blah, blah. One little reference to, oh, also general welfare. Boom. It undermines everything. Literally everything in the entire document is undermined by accepting that term. All right. Whew. That's the David Hogg update. It's not really David Hogg, like I said, but it's his uh, ilk. All right. Look at Beverly. She is on it in chat. Thank you, Beverly. She's sharing all the links. Good for her. Okay. Let's talk about crying about hobbies because this is one of uh, my favorites. This is just uh, funny. I think it's just funny. Uh, let's see if I can. I'll zoom in on this. We'll share an article here. 
this this dovetails with um, the model that I presented last week. If you remember last week, I talked about the vicious cycle between psychological dysfunction and bad philosophy and how those kind of redound upon one another and, and perpetuate. Um, and I'll say this. I know there's probably not many leftists that are watching. Uh, I don't see anyone chat in chat calling me a racist or whatever. So um, I guess not too many leftists. Uh, if you want to understand leftists, uh, why struggling people in less free countries hate your fucking guts, which they do. I mean, there's a word for you in China, Baizhou, which basically means white leftist. There's another word, uh, uh, Gao or something. I'm not great at my pronunciations, uh, in Hong Kong, which means left dumbass, which was popularized during the Hong Kong protests. This article in the Atlantic that I'm going to show you, this is one of the reasons they hate you leftists. Here it is. <laughs> I, I mean, it's hard to read this with a straight face, guys. Let's go through this. How hobbies infiltrated American life. <laughs> there's, there's a picture of like a, I don't know, sad looking Picasso-esque, but not, but not guy gardening, like watering his gears in a garden. Um, subtitle, America has a love affair with productive leisure in quotes, scare quotes, productive leisure. Now, of course, just right off the bat, the word infiltrated, uh, obviously makes hobbies sound kind of nefarious, right? No one talks about how like, <laughs> I don't know how uh, how protein infiltrated your diet. It's like no, that it's like that's a fine thing, right? Infiltrated is a, is a a weird word. It's a word choice that's intentional, but it's meant to vilify hobbies. Um, and obviously, the America has a love affair is is a condescending way of talking about productive leisure. So let's see, let's see what this says. starts off talking about, hey, during the pandemic, people did a bunch of hobbies. We took a non-scientific survey. People picked up hobbies. Okay, who cares? Here's, here's where it starts to go sideways. So they talk about, hey, hobbies. Hobbies take on this aura of being good, useful, appropriate, and socially sanctioned. Something you should do, which is a weird. Okay. This attitude far predates the coronavirus pandemic. Here we go. If you've ever felt like your Instagram feed is taunting you with all the lovely crafts, elaborate home-cooked meals, and sweaty Peloton rides that other people seem to manage to fill their time with, if you've ever felt like your dating profile looks empty unless you list several impressive leisure pursuits, if it seems like everyone has a hobby and you should too, there's a reason for this. Obviously, who's the author? She's a little bit neurotic about this. Julie. I'm sorry that this is your life, Julie. Anyway, Julie then says... The anxieties of, <laughs> I can't believe this is where she, I mean, I can believe it, but really. The anxieties of capitalism are not confined to the workplace. They have a long history of leaking into our free time. Oh my God, the anxieties of capitalism. They've leaked into my free time, the anxieties. Uh-oh. Let's just review history just for a moment. Before capitalism, we had very little leisure time. 
we spent most of our time uh, trying to eat, <laughs> um, staying alive, you know, growing food, working every hour of the day that there was light and hours that there weren't. Capitalism came along, this idea of private property and the idea that you can keep the product of your labor. And the most massive amount of wealth in the history of human civilization was produced. And that wealth led to leisure time for regular people, regular people like Julie, who probably does nothing magnificent with her life other than write articles. Even Julie has leisure time. Lots of people have lots of leisure time, thanks to capitalism. So what does Julie do with her leisure time? What does she do with the time capitalism has given her? She blames capitalism on her anxieties related to spending her leisure time on a hobby. Now, I don't know. I'm not sure that white fragility is a real concept, but if Julie's white, I'm going to apply it to her to, for a completely different meaning. This is fragile. This is the most fragile thing I've ever heard. Oh, my God, capitalism makes me anxious because it's too good to me. All right. She goes on. We're not going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. Hobby was not always something to aspire to, blah, blah, blah. She talks about how it wasn't always great. In scholarly circles, the hobby is defined by oxymorons, productive leisure, as Gelber calls it, or serious leisure. Now, I just want to point out, uh, productive leisure is not an oxymoron. I don't, I don't know why your leisure time has to be unproductive. It's, it's not an obviously an oxymoron to me. Neither is serious leisure. But okay, she's decided that they're oxymorons. And she admits here, well, serious leisure is enriching, she says. Hey, people enjoy it. Serious leisure is enriching. It brings a different kind of satisfaction than either relaxation or paid work. Research shows that leisure activities, including hobbies, are linked to better physical and mental well-being. So what are we complaining about exactly? I don't know. Obviously, other stuff can be enriching, too. Um, just as a side note here, we've talked about the rational mind being your primary means of survival. Uh, using it <laughs> is your primary means of survival. Obviously, the passive reception of entertainment and or doing something else that's not active in your mind can be uh, nourishing when you're burnt out. I, I wouldn't say not to do that when you're burnt out, but... Using your mind is the essence of being human, right? It, it, it's where you get your sense of self-efficacy from, where I'm capable of producing, I'm capable of, of living in this world. And that's important because producing is required not by capitalism, but by reality for your survival, right? Go, go live in the woods without trying to be productive in some way. You'll die very, very quickly, right? So yes, now you get to be productive by writing crappy articles for The Atlantic and people pay you for it. And, and fortunately, you don't have to start fires and hunt, but um, productivity is still required for your livelihood. Um, and it's psychologically damaging to not be productive because uh, I think I think it undermines your sense that you're capable of, su of supporting yourself. Um, it feels shitty to be dependent on other people. Um, and so any kind of thing that that reinforces the psychological, any activity that reinforces the psychological idea that you can take the world and mold it into something productive in, in, in your will 
you can manifest your will somewhere helps give you that sense that you can take care of yourself in reality. So it's not, a, it's not surprising that productive leisure is enriching. But let's go down here. But the way American culture glorifies and promotes hobbies also serves to reinforce the notion that idleness is wrong. What Gelber calls in his book, the folk wisdom of capitalism. Uh, let's pause before we even continue this here. Is the idea that idleness is wrong really what's wrong with American culture? Is that our problem? Let's just give you some, uh, I looked some stuff up for you. Hey, before the pandemic, how much time did the average 18 plus adult spend watching videos a day? Six. That's before the pandemic. I think it went up to like eight during the pandemic. Six fucking hours of every 24 spent by adults in the U.S. watching videos. Doesn't include social media. North America, average time spent on social media every day, two hours and six minutes. So I, I'm questioning this idea that the notion that idleness is wrong is the problem. I think Americans got the idleness thing down. I think they've got it down. I think we're good at it. We got idleness covered. Thank you very much. We are experts at idleness. Of course, then Gelber goes on to say, Gelber believes that hobbies reinforce the values of achievement, productivity, progress, and hard work. This is said like it's bad. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> Even as they provide a break from people's actual jobs. Uh-oh. You're allowed to take a break from your job, but you better not reinforce achievement, productivity, progress, and hard work. That's a bad idea. He says, if capitalism is culturally hegemonic, then productive leisure is surely one of the instruments of its continuing domination. Oh, my God. This capitalism is dangerous. Look at this. It's dominating you continually by reinforcing the values of achievement, productivity, progress, and hard work, even in your leisure. I mean, this is... Uh, <laughs> Socialists in general or any anti-capitalists generally have this insane, ins it's literally insane. I'm not being hyperbolic. It's an insane idea that you can ignore these values, achievement, productivity, progress, hard work, and still survive in reality. That's not, reality doesn't work that way. You can't ignore those values and survive. You die. Your brain is what uh, you need to survive. You have to use your brain to function and achieve things, and be productive, and work hard, like you, those things need to happen, or you die, you don't just sit there in the woods, and get, you're not, we're not in the matrix, you can't sit in your pod, and on a feeding tube, that's not how reality works, he's literally criticizing the things that drive higher standards of living, and more happiness for people, that's what he's doing, We can skip to the end. But, and by the way, the Protestant work ethic thing. Um, oh, here, here's a quote. Here's a, here's a Protestant work ethic quote. 
Another one from Gelmer. Hobbyists are, quote, seldom aware of the ideological implications of their pastimes. <laughs> I mean, come on, really? Excuse me. I know you like to knit everyone in chat because this is by default a knitting channel. Um, are you aware of the ideological implications of knitting sweaters? Because if you're not, you're the problem. But whether we realize it or not, even when we are alone, off the clock, doing whatever the hell we want, the Protestant work ethic and its pressure to be productive are still with us. It sounds like a disease. Are we supposed to, I'm an atheist. I'm not scared of the Protestant work ethic just because you throw the word Protestant in front of it. You know who's got the Protestant work ethic? China. As Trump would say, China. That's why they're kicking our ass at a lot of things. They have a work ethic, which, by the way, is necessary if you'd like to survive. All right, let's look at the end. Um, the message that a hobby is the best way to spend one's free time is also a message about what you should value most in life, hard work, achievement, and productivity. Those aren't bad things, but are they really more important than relationships, contemplation, and rest? Hanging out with your friends, caring for your family, enjoying creature comforts, replenishing your energy. These may not make for a unique fun fact to whip out at parties, but they're good for the soul. Um, okay. Julie here is apparently worried about relationships, contemplation, rest, hanging out with her friends, caring for her family, enjoying creature comforts, replenishing energy. These are things she cares about. Now, if she cared about this, and this is really what she cared about, would she be ignoring the fact that we're spending more than six hours a day watching television? Would she be ignoring the fact that we're spending, as of 2019, over two hours a day on social media? Probably not good for any of this stuff. No, she wouldn't be. What's she doing here? Instead of caring about this stuff, she purports only at the end, by the way. She throws it in at the end. Instead of caring about this stuff, she scapegoats hobbies. Not just hobbies, productive hobbies specifically. And while she's at it, she throws some shade at capitalism. Because it encourages productivity and it gives people too much free time, God forbid. It's like complaining capitalism makes life better too. Ow, it makes life better. Now I have to things in my free time. Why is she doing this? This is the question. Right. This is the, the big question I asked is why the hell is Julie doing this? What's up, Julie? What the fuck are you doing? I mean, I know there's some projection going on here and I'm sorry that you have performative hobby anxiety, but something else has got to be going on here, right? Because clearly she views hobbies as like a performative thing. I got to show on social media that I'm knitting or else I'm not cool. Why is she doing this? Well, look, I mean, it's always fun for leftists to turn the successes of capitalism into things to whine, to whine about. But that's not really the effect. Let's look at the effect of this article. If this article did what she wanted to, what would, what would it accomplish? Well, um, it would discourage productive hobbies obviously. Um, the article doesn't actually encourage any of the things that she, you know, purported to care about at the very end, right? It's not like the article is all about spend more time on relationships and contemplation. 
she throws it in at the end as an afterthought. So it wouldn't really, it's not meant to encourage those things. So if it discourages productive hobbies and it incur and it doesn't encourage those things really, um, what what will be the result? If you stop doing your productive hobbies and you don't, you're just not really doing any job at encouraging why you should do anything else, what will you likely do? Well, you'll probably spend more time on social media and television, probably more passive consumption because that's what we do. And the ultimate goal here, I think, whether it's conscious or not, um, and Julie may have her own uh, personal reasons for doing this because, like I said, I think she's got hobby performance anxiety or whatever. But um, the ultimate goal here is to encourage you to turn off your mind. They don't like that you're engaging your mind. They don't like it, right? Good tax livestock in the tax farm. Good tax livestock gets up, goes to work when they're told to and does what they're told. And at the end of the day, they go home and they take their SOMA, right? For a Brave New World reference. They take their SOMA. They rely on their, which, which is mass media consumption. They, they go home and they rely on uh, mass media for entertainment. Um, they rely on social media for dopamine hits or whatever. They rely on the, the establishment provided entertainment to hit their dopamine until it's time to go to bed. That's what they want. They do, the, a good, a good, Tax livestock doesn't exercise his mind because exercising your mind, even if it's something that doesn't seem directly related, um, that could lead to divergent opinions about things, which could lead to entrepreneurship, which is not what they want. Uh, it could lead to, you know, making shitty Atlantic reporters feel bad about themselves. So I, I think this is, this is a, again, I'm not saying it's conspiracy theorists. I don't think Julie specifically sat down and said, how can I get people to turn off their minds? Um, she's got her own anxieties, I'm sure. But this this is this is why this fits with the overall uh, goal, political and philosophical and psychological goal of the cathedral. They want you to shut off your mind. This is why it's a good article for them. Right? If it works, they don't like that you have hobbies. They prefer instead of knitting that you watch Netflix. That's what they prefer. All right. I'm going to do some super chats before we move on because there have been a couple and I don't want to miss you guys. I don't want to ignore them. Sorry about that. I know I saw a couple flew by. All right. I think the first one I see here is Off Light and Naked says, you may be accidentally depressing viewers. If you do the show early or later, you wouldn't, be competing with Timcast IRL starts at eight Eastern to ten PM. I don't care, dude. I mean, my life does not revolve around competing with Timcast. I don't care. I have a family. I got things to do. This is the time I can do it. This is what you get. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but like, I'm not. I'm not schedule things that way. I just don't care. Want to go listen to Timcast? Go watch Timcast. And by the way, we are nothing like this show. Is nothing like Timcast. So it's a totally different thing. Um, and he's on every day. All right, Pyrotomsky says, Carter, have you seen the CRT analysis that Lotus Eaters have done? Posted in Discord. Would love to hear your analysis on those videos. I haven't. I haven't. Um, I'll check them out. Thank you, Pyrotomsky. I haven't, I haven't seen that. I have been thinking about doing a, looking at some of the source material for some of this. Like, I've got a couple 
Kimberly Crenshaw articles that are sitting here that I reference a lot. I was wondering about going through them in dangerous thoughts, like just going through and showing you some of the ridiculousness of like some of the errors they're making. I'm not sure that it would be, <laughs> I'm not sure that it would keep your attention. Um, Tara T says, beautiful hand dyed yarn pictures on Instagram are oppressive. F the white supremacist patriarchy. Yes, they are. Green socks are also oppressive. Knitting in general is oppressive, Tara. You're a horrible person for having a productive hobby. I'll fight you naked says, this is weird, but I think Julie accidentally has a point. Find people find comfort and meaning in being self-sufficient. Yeah, well, she admits that, right? I mean, that you know, she does admit that. She admits that, like, oh, they get some value there. Like, that's true. Like, she 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 did a nod to reality. There's that one paragraph where she kind of admits, like, well, you know, it is good for people and you like it. <laughs> but then she kind of went on, right? I, she probably felt like she had to admit that other people would, otherwise people would be like, what the hell, Julie? Um, so. Uh, oh, Pyrotomsky says, Carter Lotus Eaters take Kim Crenshaw apart. It's quite glorious. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it's, she's not hard to take apart. She's not hard to take apart. She's just, um, it's kind of mind numbing to go through. Right. I think one of her articles, she cites three different court cases that you'd have to get into and kind of find things. But I've got my copies with notes written all over them about uh, <laughs> errors that are being made and whatever. Um, so I will look. Uh, I'll look into that. Greg DeBaritone says Timcast serves a purpose. Absolutely, it does. Uh, not throwing Timcast under the bus. I just don't care. Okay. <laughs> I don't care about what time it runs. Okay. Last thing we're going to talk about, which is what I said I would talk about last week if I had time, and we do this week, I think. Postmodernism's meta-narrative about science. And this is inspired by uh, Thaddeus Russell, but uh, this is not directly aimed at Thaddeus Russell. He's just uh, he's a postmodernist that I've seen out and about talking about this stuff. He's in the liberty movement, so I see him more often. Um and he's given several times. He's given some overviews of uh, the postmodernist meta narrative regarding science, um, and it's bothered me. And uh, I specifically just saw the most recent one I saw was a debate with uh, Stephen Hicks, <clears throat> and uh, just really bothered me. Um, and I realized that this is what he's saying has leaked outside of of postmodernism. And by the way, I, the irony is not lost to me when I say postmodernism's meta narrative i know people who know postmodernism and critical theory and whatever will say postmodernism rejects meta narratives carter what the hell are you talking about there can't be a postmodern meta narrative there is i understand that they reject them it's just ironic um that they have one and reject it um so uh <sighs> the reason this is important even if you're not going to actually talk to a postmodernist about this stuff. Um, Cause rarely do people that are, you're rarely talking to a real postmodernist, but this interpretation of science and the scientific process is widespread. I've seen it. It leaked out of postmodernism here. It infiltrated as Julie would say, it has infiltrated American life. Uh, so I want I want you, I want you to understand it and understand what's wrong with it. This um, meta narrative about science simultaneously mi misrepresents science 
attacks the foundations of science, uh, blames science for things, and then claims that true science requires postmodern epistemology and metaphysics. Um, namely, true science requires that you reject truth claims. That's the that's the meta narrative. Um, before I even delve into those four components, I want you to remember first that when you're talking to someone who's using postmodern language, you need to remember that the entire discussion, you're having a discussion with an apparition. It's a, you're having a discussion with a void. It's a ghost. They're not a person in this sense. And I don't mean, I don't actually mean that derogatorily. What I mean is they explicitly, explicitly reject universal truth statements. The idea that anything is true, right? Or that there's any statements that could be applied universally. They say they reject this. So genocide is wrong. They will not say that that's not, that that's true or not true. They will say, well, it's a useless statement. I just don't like the statement, right? What postmodernists do with this kind of stuff is they put the cart before the horse. They start with their personal values, which often involve political preferences. Rarely are they preferences like Thaddeus Russell's, uh, which are more libertarian. Usually they're they're uh, some sort of authoritarian or Marxist type preferences, but they, they are pseudo-Marxist preferences. Um, they start with those preferences for, for how they want things to be, and they use kind of any linguistic tools available to push those values. And they do this explicitly. This is not, not me misrepresenting what they do. They say it explicitly. So when you're having a conversation with a postmodernist or someone using their language, they're only playing a word, word games with you by their own admission. So you're there thinking that you're talking about life and death and the importance of freedom or this or that. Um, they're just playing with language and expressing their arbitrary and subjective preferences, right? And just so you know, I'm not misrepresenting this. I'm going to read a couple Thaddeus, Thaddeus Russell quotes. He's one of the better ones, right? Because he's at least liberty-minded. Here's some quotes. What, these are not out of context. These are about like talking about real things. It's just about being interesting, not about being right. At one point he says uh, in a debate, he says, there's nothing in my book and my work anywhere that is true. I never speak the truth. I'm telling stories and you can like them or not. I don't think they're any more true than any other story. Right? So, um, and when you call postmodernists out, and in fact, in the debate I'm thinking of, Thaddeus Russell was called out using language uh, like, I'm completely convinced that blah, 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 right? And and the moderator asked him, like, well, that seems like a truth statement, right? Um, they they backpedal into this. It's, it's really, I, I hate how deceitful and dishonest it is. Well, I'm operating as a historian within a modernist frame, he'll say. Right, I have to convince other historians, or I have to convince the general public. So to do that, I have to operate within a particular sphere, right? And what that means is, the mouth sounds I make, I have to use the mouth sounds that correspond to modernism to get what I want, but they don't mean anything, right? That might remind you a little bit of the Socrates quote that we did earlier. So just keep this in mind when we go through how they treat science with the meta narrative of science is I, again, I get that that sounds like an oxymoron postmodernist meta narrative. Um, just remember that whenever you hear them making any claims about anything, whenever talk about, they say this, or they claim this, it's actually all just a game to them. The words have no reality correspondence explicitly. They don't 
mean anything other than social constructed, like, but they don't correspond to reality, right? They mean socially agreed things, but they don't correspond. There's no reality correspondence. All right. All right. First, they misrepresent science. They do this in a couple of ways. They say, uh, what, they, they start by saying, well, you know, science isn't about finding truth. It's about finding falsehoods, right? It's about disproving truth. Um, and in fact, they will say like real scientists will never say they're finding truth. They're just disproving claims about truth. That's what real scientists do. They only disclaim this, disprove uh, claims. Um, and of course, this is a misrepresentation of science. Um, science isn't just about disproving truth claims. It doesn't choose like random arbitrary assertions and then decide to disprove them. It's not like, how about the moon is green, made of green cheese, guys? We disproved that one. Next, right? Like Newton doesn't arrive at F equals MA from being like, well, how about force equals mass divided by acceleration? Nope, I proved that's wrong. Force equals mass plus acceleration. Nope, proved that's wrong. Force equals mass times temperature. Nope, not that either. Like it, it's not just arbitrary, like I'm finding some things to disprove about reality. That would take an infinite amount of time because there are an infinite amount of things you could disprove. Um, that's not how science, what science does is it targets the truth. It has a target, the truth. Um, it makes hypotheses about what is true based on evidence. It's inductive, right? So it looks out at the world, sees some evidence, formulates a hypothesis. Then it tests the hypothesis, gathering more evidence, trying, seeing if there's ways to contradict it. And then it will dismiss that hypothesis if it's disproven. If it can't be disproven and sufficient evidence kind of accumulates to support that hypothesis, <clears throat> eventually it's called knowledge. We slap a label on it. We're like, yep, that's knowledge. Um, <clears throat> let me give you an analogy. If you get in a giant boat and you set sail from New York to London, and let's say it's an infinite journey, you'll never actually get to London, but whatever, you set sail from New York to London. You're not going to sail in a straight line exactly, right? Even with GPS, you're going to make slight course corrections along the way, right? A postmodernist would, halfway through the journey, a postmodernist would look back at your course and your course corrections that you made, and they would declare, hey, sailing is just about identifying the wrong direction. It has nothing to do with actually going anywhere. That that would be the conclusion. That's, that's the dishonesty of this argument, right? And of course, that's not true. The fact that you're constantly changing your position and making course corrections doesn't mean you're not headed anywhere. It doesn't mean you don't have an objective, right? In other words, disproving truth claims, which science does do, doesn't mean you're never making any truth claims. Um, so one way they misrepresent science is by saying it's all about disproving truth claims. That's part of what it is, but it's not what it's all about. Another way they misrepresent science is... Um, They argue that truth claims, they'll say things like, well, science is constantly wrong. It's constantly being overturned. It turned, it's constantly being turned out to be false. Like we thought this yesterday, but today we know that's false, right? And um, the postmodernist, from what I can tell and from what I think Thaddeus Russell uh, would agree that Thomas Kuhn is kind of the, um, 
the, the postmodernist thinker of of record here, like the, the main guy. He had a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in it, he argues scientific truth is constantly changing, right? Um, and the kind of things that, that um, postmodernists will cite for this uh, are, for example, the, the move from the Ptolemaic geocentric model of the, of the solar system to the Copernican revolution. Um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe add Galileo after that or whatever, but, you know, obviously the, the Ptolemaic system was the earth is at the center and the sun revolves around the earth. Right. And obviously the Copernican revolution was, nope, that's backwards. The sun's at the center and the earth revolves around the sun. Um, and they'll use that as evidence. See, we thought that the sun revolved around the earth and we were totally wrong. The earth revolved around the sun. Science was totally wrong, uncorrelated to truth. It's constantly changing. That's that's the argument. Another argument that they'll make, which is a little bit uh, less obvious, is the argument from Newton to Einstein, right? They'll say, well, Newton said, uh, this is what gravity is like. Einstein proved that Newton's wrong. It's more complicated than that, right? And so they look at these examples of science, quote, constantly changing, which is true. In some sense, it does constantly change. Uh, and they say, well, science can't find the truth. It's constantly wrong. Therefore, we should abandon the notion of truth, right? There is no truth. Abandon the notion of truth. You're always wrong about it. Um, so we should abandon the notion of truth. You might ask them, hey, is it true that we should abandon the notion of truth? Hmm. No, it's not true. It's just a story. Uh, and and so this representation of this cycle of, of science, of this science is always changing, is based on a horrifically simplified and I will argue outright dishonest representation of science and scientific knowledge. It's just dishonest. I can't, I, I'd like to grant uh, people the benefit of the doubt here, but I, it's hard I, I don't know how this can't be dishonest. Um, it's based on this uh, representation of, of science that says you're either omniscient or you know absolutely nothing. That's the false dichotomy. Either you're omniscient or you know nothing. Those are the choices, right? Truth doesn't exist or you know, or truth is you're, you're omniscient, right? It's also based on this kind of ridiculous epistemological skepticism. Right, where a so a modernist, like a, a someone from the Enlightenment who embraces reason and evidence, right? A modernist would say, well, when enough evidence uh, for a claim rises to the level, uh, if you have if you have a claim and you get enough evidence for it, and it it rises to a level of truth in a particular context, which we'll get to in a minute, but enough evidence that rise that claim will rise to the level of truth within some context, and a postmodernist would say, well. You're not omniscient, true. So you can't be 100% sure, I guess. So you can make no truth claims, right? You can make no truth claims, except for that one, I guess. Uh, <laughs> this is the ultimate anti-human epistemological standard. I, I don't think you could get more anti-human in your epistemological standard than this. The reason that we care about epistemology is precisely because humans are not omniscient. If we were omniscient, we wouldn't give a crap about epistemology, but we're not, right? So we need to sort out. It's a process. 
We need to sort out what's true and what's not. And we need to have a, diff- a label to differentiate between a claim that's highly validated for which we've never identified contradictions yet and a claim that is arbitrary, right? We have to know the difference between a validated claim and a claim like, uh, I don't know, thetans are uh, immortal alien spirits that disturb the psychology of humans, right? That's a Scientology claim. We need to know whether that can be called truth or not. We need to have a label to differentiate that from scientific knowledge. And that label is knowledge or truth. It's what we commonly use. It's not a mystery what that label is. But the postmodernists might say, well, but Ptolemy was wrong. And then Copernicus was wrong. And Newton was wrong. Einstein corrected Newton. Right? So Copernicus corrected Ptolemy. Galileo corrected Copernicus. Newton corrected them both. Or sorry, uh, Einstein corrected them both. And and, and he corrected Newton. And what I... I'd like to you to understand here is that's just not true. Newton was not wrong. Newton was not wrong because knowledge is contextual and has a scope. We're learning about the world. The world is in, the universe is in an infinite place and our knowledge is infinitesimal. It's tiny a bit of knowledge that we have. And we're not omniscient. And it's a hard process to get that knowledge. And the analogy that I'll use to describe this is Science is kind of like peering at reality with a microscope, right? And you describe what you see. You look into the microscope and you describe these are the things I see, right? And you identify an area to study further. This kind of makes no sense over here or whatever. Or I, I, there seems to be something weird about this area, right? And then you increase the resolution of the microscope on those areas. And you refine what you see. You refine your description. It becomes more granular. Granular. You aren't wrong. When you go to the beach and you look at the sand and you say, hey, the sand is all uniform color. It's tan, whatever. You're not wrong. Within the context of how you're interacting with the sand when you're on vacation at a beach, you're right. It's a universal color. It's a uniform color. It's tan. That's correct. You're not wrong. That's not untrue. Of course, if you got a microscope and you zoomed in on the sand get more granularity, no pun intended, get more granularity, you'll see different colors of sand crystal things. I don't know what they're called, right? You'll see different colors. At that level of granularity, your concept of sand becomes more complex. But it still doesn't cease to look tan when you go to the beach. You're not wrong for saying, hey, there's some beautiful white beaches in the Philippines. Because at that level of granularity, you go to the beach, like you're sunbathing and swimming. You're correct. It's a level of granularity. There's a context to that knowledge. There's a context to that knowledge. Right? Just like sailing, science is attempting to get somewhere. Unlike sailing, there's not actually you won't actually get to the destination, but you're pointed at a destination, and you get closer and closer to that destination. It's you get increased levels of granularity to your knowledge. So let's apply this to Ptolemy and Newton. I'm going to say something that might be shocking. Ptolemy. Ptolemy said the sun revolves around the earth. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. All right? Uh, in, in the context, he wasn't trying to build spacecraft. I don't know exactly that. Maybe he was just curious. Maybe he wanted agricultural reasons or whatever. But from the perspective of someone who's just, let's say you just, 
sitting at home, tilling your garden, the sun does revolve around the earth in that context. In fact, when my daughter was little, I took her outside because I was, I'm trying to teach her things. I was trying to teach her things through induction. I took her outside and one day and every hour from sunset to sundown, every hour she had, she had a, she had a picture of our backyard and we made a, we made a bunch of copies of the picture and every hour she drew where the sun was in the sky. Right. And at the end of the day, we made a little video of it, actually. But at the end of the day, we we put those pictures together, and she could see, oh, look, the sun moves. It moved in an arc across the sky. It rises. We use the language. It rises in the east, and it sets in the west. That's how we talk about the sun. If your level of interaction with the sun is limited to working in your garden, the Ptolemaic model is fine. It's perfectly accurate and true, Right. The sun doesn't rise in the north and set in the east. It doesn't make spirals in the sky. It doesn't change the speed in a way that matters to you measurably. Where the Ptolemaic model fails is if you try and have more granularity or expand your context. Then it fails, right? And fortunately, Copernicus came along and said, hey, actually, the earth revolves around the sun. Hey, that you can better predict stars. You could probably do navigation better that way, right? I'm not. Totally sure. I assume they did navigation before Copernicus with the stars, but he probably did a better job of predicting all this stuff. And we know the model worked better. Okay. Um, it doesn't change a thing if you're in the garden, right? Your Ptolemaic model is still fine. Rises in the east, sets in the west. Because that level of granularity is all you need. Right. Now, of course, Copernicus his predictions weren't exactly right either. So Galileo had to come over and say, actually, this, the orbits are ellipses. Circles are just approximations of ellipses. But if you need more granularity, if you need more context, if you want to talk about space flight or whatever, or the, the movement of bodies and really want to track them precisely, you need better granularity than Copernicus. And Galileo provided that, right? Still doesn't change how you view the sun in your garden. It's simply more granular context. Newton's the same way, right? He has more uh, forces, mass times acceleration, or his gravitational theory uh, force is proportional by a constant of the product of two masses uh, divided by the, the square of the distance between them. Okay. The context he's talking about is objects at the everyday macro level that you took apples, right? That's what Newton's talking about. He's right. That's true. Now, when we zoomed in or changed context, we looked at very small things or even very large things like celestial objects, Newton starts to fall apart, right? Which is where Einstein comes in to expand context or quantum mechanics comes in to get a more granular view. We need Einstein if we're going to do GPS. You need to account for it if you're going to have a, a GPS positioning satellite, right? You need to account for quantum effects if you're doing super small chip fab. I don't know if they do five nanometer chip fab yet, but like you get down to that level, you need to start accounting for quantum effects. But Newton's not wrong, right? Both the cases of Einstein and Newton kind of, or Einstein and, and quantum mechanics kind of collapse into Newtonian physics, basically at the level of an apple or a pen or whatever, right? Another example they sometimes use is the, uh, I heard I heard Thaddeus Russell use this, a wall is empty space, right? Because a wall seems very solid, right? And then you, oh, it turns out it's atoms and there's empty space between them. And that sounds crazy, right? Well, 
it's not as crazy as it sounds. It's not that they were wrong. It's that the definition of of actually solid was expanded, right? Like, oh, now we understand what matter is, how solid. Like, there are strong atomic forces that prevent you from walking through a wall. Like, it is still solid in that sense to you. Um, and and like the the context was expanded. We got more granular in our understanding, right? It's not like the wall is now suddenly empty space in the same respect that it wasn't empty space before, right? These are not cases of science being wildly wrong and having to completely change its mind. That is a lie about science. And that idea is used to imply that science has no relationship with the truth. That is a false implication. That's just a lie. It's an outright lie. And the, and the examples I gave you, these are, these are, Examples of simply getting closer to the truth. They're examples of increasing granularity and expanding to a deeper or broader context. That's what those are examples of. <laughs> we have a mathematician who's pointing out there are infinite things that can be disproven in chat. Yes. Yeah. All right. We said that the, the other three are going to be shorter, trust me. But we said that postmodernism uh, attack, or misrepresents, attacks, blames, and, and, and claims. Those are the, the four things it does. Misrepresents science, attacks science, blames science for things, and claims to be necessary for science. So we talked about how it misrepresents. Those are the two major ways that I see that it misrepresents science. And you see those outside of postmodernism, which is why I'm bringing it up. Right? People will be like, oh, science is always changing. Right? If, they, if they're using that to imply that it's completely wrong and you can just ignore it or it has no tr claim on truth. I would like to say you can smack them, but you can't. That's the initiation of the use of force. All right. Um, Postmodernism, let's talk about how it attacks science. This is short and obvious. Uh, science relies on some assumptions. One, there is a natural world, which is an objective reality, because that's what they're trying to observe. And two, the assumption that we can learn something about that reality through observation and reasoning. Reason being non-contradictory identification. They're pretty basic assumptions. Uh, they're not hard to grasp, except if you're a postmodernist. They don't bother you unless you're a postmodernist. Um, but both of those assumptions are rejected by postmodernists, right? Um, to them, it's all about social constructions. Reason is just kind of an, one way of doing it. It's just arbitrary. Right. It's like, it doesn't have correspondence to reality. You're just showing your, your computer screen right now. Oh, why didn't you tell me that earlier? I'm like, I'm articulating. Look, I was, I made the best, best faces for everyone. You just all missed it. Thank you, Beverly. Did you, I hope you all heard Beverly coming in and yell at me. <laughs> it's my fault. It wasn't Beverly's fault. Do not blame her. That was my fault. Uh, sorry, you guys were looking at Julie Beck's name and a, a tab of a bad uh, piece of art. It's what you get for letting a boomer do stuff. Um, so anyway, yeah, both of those are rejected by postmodernism. Again, just because reason is just kind of this arbitrary thing. Um, now, postmodernism is forced. Like the postmodernists will admit that science is useful if you force them. Because, well, you don't even have to force them. They readily admit that science is useful in their language, right? It's not true. It doesn't say anything about reality, but it's useful. Why? Right? You can you can ask like useful for what? 
the arbitrary values of your socially constructed non-being? What the hell is it useful for? What does that even mean? Right? Um, but they have to say this because it's pretty clear that science is pretty fucking useful in reality to the rest of us. So they have to like, they can't run around being saying like, that's oh, the same as there's no use, right? People wouldn't listen to them. So they have to say, well, it's useful. What it's useful for to a postmodernist who, who <laughs> thinks we're socially constructed non-beings, I don't know. But they will say that there's no reason that science is any better than alchemy or witchcraft, right? It's just preferred. We just like it. Just our mode of being. We like science. But if you like witchcraft, go for it. <sighs> All right. Let's talk about how science blames. We talked about how it misrepresents, or sorry, how postmodernism misrepresents science, attacks science. Let's talk about how it blames science. Infuriating, actually, if you're related to science in your career or background. Um, science in the Enlightenment generally, uh, and by that I mean the, the you know objective reality and reason, uh, is blamed because it's because it's a non-subjective morality, right? Postmodernist is also subjective morality. Uh, it's blamed for the atrocities of the 19th and 20th century, right? Eugenics, racially motivated uh, genocides, forced sterilization, imprisonment, right? They blame science for this. And they do this by saying, well, Leading scientists justified this. They probably also blame science for the UC atomic bomb. I don't know. But leading science scientists justified this. All right. Here's another, here's a quote from Thaddeus Russell again. I'm picking on him tonight. If we agree that scientists are always right, then they were right about eugenics. They were right about scientific racism. They were right about scientific sexism. Obviously, that's a false dichotomy, right? We don't agree that scientists are always right. We agree that science is the best way to obtain, to get at, to chip away at, and find something closer to the truth over time. That's what we agree on. No one agrees that scientists are always right. This is a straw man. And this is a dishonest sleight of hand, this blaming them for eugenics and that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a despicable sleight of hand. Science is descriptive. And it only concerns itself with the natural world. Right? What's out there? How does it work? That's the purview of science. Right? At worst, scientists can be wrong. Right? You can pick on some some bad theory, race science theories of the 19th century or whatever, right? In that case, if they're wrong, science has a built-in mechanism for identifying the errors. That mechanism is based on enlightenment epistemology of reality correspondence, reason. <laughs> it's evidence, reality correspondence, non-contradiction. That's how it corrects itself. 
and figures out that this theory is wrong, that this thing, even if a bunch of, again, science isn't consensus either, right? We've seen that with COVID. Uh, it's, not, it's not consensus, right? So obviously scientists can be wrong, but science, like morality and politics, they're not in the domain of science. They are in the domain of rational philosophy and and, and need to be addressed, but not science. So the fact that governments took the scientific consensus of the day, which may or may not be correct, and transmuted that using the initiation of force into policies that imprisoned, sterilized, and murdered people is not an indictment of science. It's an indictment of the government. And frankly, it's a desperate cry for rational ethics that make clear the immorality of taking those actions. Even if the science was right, it's immoral to do that. And governments historically have done the same thing with religion, right? They'll take an alleged truth from religion and use it to justify genocide. But that's not an argument about against truth. Moral relativism doesn't actually correct the problem, which is what postmodernism has to offer. It exacerbates the problem, right? Because what they're saying is, well, truth claims are used by thugs to justify their behavior, and they're used successfully. So what's their answer? Let's get rid of truth claims. Like that's just that's just another way of telling the thug, hey, now you don't even need a justification, buddy. Now you can just tell people, I'm killing you. It's not right or wrong. There's nothing true or false about what I'm saying. I'm just telling stories and you can like it or not. The idea that, that, that you blame science for these kind of atrocities is it's disgustingly repulsive. It's dishonest at the deepest level. All right, last thing. Postmodernism makes claims. Oh, true science requires postmodernist epistemology. Specifically, it requires the rejection of truth. So after they blame science for stuff and, and misrepresented science and attacked it, now they're claiming it. Well, if you really like the science, I mean, it is convenient and all, and you definitely need postmodernism for it. You need to be able to reject truth. You need to reject the idea of truth claims. You need that post postmodern epistemology. Why do they say this? Well, uh, they say that it is anti-science to accept claims without any skepticism because then you stop looking for answers. And that's true. If you wholeheartedly accept claims with zero skepticism, you will probably stop looking for answers and that's not science. And it's tempting to, to hear that argument and go, yeah, you're right, postmodernists. I guess science really needs to say they never make any truth claims. Of course, that argument also applies to religious explanations, right? Why is it this way? Because God said it. Okay. Right? You stop looking. Right? I know some religious people will say, no, we still want to understand how God did it. But some people, for some people, it's a stumbling block. The, the literalists are like, well, it says six days. Let's not, let's not look at anything else, right? But making a truth claim for a, for a rational person, for a modernist, making a truth claim doesn't mean that you stop looking. Science doesn't make a truth claim and then write it down in the Bible and never give it another thought. That's not how science works. Modern science. Forget about postmodern, like actual science. That's not how it works. 
like we talked about, the claim is contextual. And as we mentioned, science is largely inductive. So your truth claims arrive from an, usually, I mean, sometimes they're derived, but they arrive from an inductive process of looking out at the world and attempting to formulate a model for understanding how it's behaving. That model has to be non-contradictory, right? Although only if reality is non-contradictory. So I don't know how postmodernism squares that circle. Um, although to them, circles and squares, just contracts. Um, so it's got to be non-contradictory. And, and this means that for science, reality reigns supreme, right? So if contradictory evidence surfaces, the evidence wins, not the truth claim. The evidence comes first, right? And that's how truth claims are refined, mostly. Occasionally, they'll, they'll be overturned. Sometimes it's the, it can be completely wrong, right? But usually, they're just refined, as we've talked about in some examples. So the enlightenment... The Enlightenment approach, the, the non-postmodern, the modern approach is you look at reality and do some experiments, whatever. You build a model. You test it. The more that model holds, the better status you give it in terms of truth. You elevate its status. Maybe it starts with working hypotheses and gets to be a tentative theory, and then it kind of is accepted, and then it becomes an applied theory. Like you're, you're building planes with it, right? At that point, you're like, it's, it's achieved this this high level of knowledge, you really call it knowledge at that point, you put it in engineering textbooks, right? But of course, if contradictory evidence is found, you follow it, right? You follow it. And, and usually what that will lead to is increase in the granularity of your model, right? You get closer to the truth. You say, hey, wait a minute, when things approach the speed of light, this, this other stuff doesn't seem to work this way. Yeah, great. Expand your model. It doesn't, the other thing's not wrong, right? You just have a more granular view of the truth. You see truth more clearly now. That's all, right? Truth claims are made with a certain granularity. And major mistakes are much less frequent than postmodernists imply they are. And you can tell because the examples they use are things like Copernicus, which is not a mistake right? And Ptolemy. And even if mistakes are made, the process is self-correcting, right? You throw out truth claims. Um, uh, you, 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 don't, you refine your truth claims, right? If, if they're wrong. But throwing out the idea of truth claims altogether is throwing out the goal of science. That's the goal of science. You're throwing it away, right? The philosophical foundations that you need to practice science are an objective non-contradictory reality and a process of identifying reality in a non-contradictory manner, which is reason. These are enlightenment ideas, not postmodern modern ideas. What science doesn't need is a philosophical system that uh, has no objective reality. I'm just telling stories. And any epistemology is as good as any other, right? Some are just more preferred by some people and some are just social constructs anyway. Right. So don't get sucked into the circular quagmire of postmoderns meta narrative about science. Um, because it has leaked out of it has leaked out of postmodernism. Now what we haven't talked about is uh the scientism and science scientist worship stuff. We've talked about that on previous shows. Um that's more relevant to some of the COVID stuff happening where it's like the science TM, right? It's, is basically whatever Fauci says, right? Which also isn't science, as we've just discussed. Um, that's not really a, po I don't think that postmodernist thing, that's just like a religion thing. Um, but this this other 
idea of science is is has leaked out of postmodernism, and you need to understand that you don't need to be afraid of truth claims and that they are contextual and that you think of science as this increasingly granular uh, lens through which you're you're viewing the truth. And maybe at the beginning, it's very messy. It's very blurry and you can't tell really tell what it is and you you got your model you know and it turns out well when we we found some things that contradict the model and we we figure out oh increase the granularity a little bit this makes oh this is a clearer picture now i understand that's all it is all right i'm going to uh i'm gonna look through chat for a sec here uh i think i missed a couple super chats i did Afaiyanaka says, why did you read some comments in a weirdly aggressive way? Are you still no sleep, Carter? I don't know. Was I weirdly aggressive? Well, probably one of your comments. You're probably responding. You may be excellent. I don't know. I'm aggressive about Timcast. I think that if it was the Timcast thing, it was because I've heard that before. Um, I'm just I'm tired of people like, you should do it at this time. Whatever. Uh, Pirate Tomsky says, just chucking 10 pounds at you to support the USS crew. Don't forget to plug the newly structured Discord. Thank you, Pirate Tomsky. And I will not forget to plug it. I didn't actually realize we've talked about structuring it. Beverly went ahead and started some of that today. I didn't realize that. We do have a Discord. Um, if you're a supporter of the show financially, you get to be in the Discord. And we've been asking how to improve it, how to make the whole experience better. And we're starting to do some of that. I didn't even realize Beverly has been doing that. I'm glad that she did. So, um, oh, Joe, Joe Flink in chat. Um, I'm going to read this because I didn't have time to actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't write this down and I forgot. I didn't want to get the equation wrong, but he just did. He, he has it correct here. He, he says a very pure refinement example was relativity's explication of Newton's equations, right? F equals MA. Right, that's the one way I mentioned, right? Einstein just learned that M is a variable, right? Characterized by the equation one, uh, one over one minus the square root of V squared C squared, right? So um, this is important because uh, it's a great mathematical, I wish I could put it on the screen. It's a great mathematical example of refinement because as V, as your speed is insignificant with respect to the speed of light, which is constant, it literally collapses into F equals MA, right? It literally falls into Newton's equation. So it's like Einstein, in this respect, just discovered that there was another term that played a role, which is negligible for the entire context of Newton, but becomes non-negligible when you start to move closer to the speed of light. It's a great example. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, all right. I think that's it. Uh, as a reminder, I assume you're subscribed. If you're not, go do that. Please help. If you like the community, if you want to talk to other people about this stuff, not a lot of people like to talk about this. So if you want to talk to other people about this stuff and not just in chat on Wednesdays or about stuff on other shows, right? We have shows about censorship, uh, 451 Degrees. We've got shows about The Great Reset, called The Great Reset. We've got Coffee Break. Um, if you want to talk about other stuff, 
support the show, get into Discord, have those conversations. Special thanks to those of you who do support the show already. Um, and as Power Tomsky said, Discord's getting better. So I guess it's getting better. Um, as always, I do want uh, topic suggestions and feedback. Um, maybe I will go through the Kimberly Crenshaw stuff if it's necessary, although Power Tomsky says uh, Lotus Eaters has done some of it, so that's good. Um, but yeah, send send feedback. Let me know how it's uh, what you want to see. And um, thanks for spending your Wednesday evening doing this. Uh, it is super important to be able to have the intellectual tools necessary to fight the enemies of Western civilization who are using sometimes ridiculous sounding stuff, but nevertheless convincing and are doing a good job uh, destroying society. So I think that's it. Beverly, you can run the credits. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. Please download this updated list of contagious individuals. I am authorized to assure you that your sacred freedom to choose between available approved options will be preserved. Mass formation psychosis is just a right-wing talking point. Please purge it from memory and resume your programming. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.